Good evening, and welcome to the Pratt. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and we're really delighted to see so many of you here. It's uh, sort of the dog days of summer, and we're glad there's still some people here in Baltimore to come out to these events. Anyway, this is um, Baltimore Restaurant Week. So anyway, for we decided to celebrate Restaurant Week by inviting Lucy Snodgrass here to, um, to the Pratt. And her popular new cookbook is called Dishing Up Maryland, 150 Recipes from the Alleghenies to the Chesapeake Bay. This book is about eating locally and seasonally and about supporting the farmers and watermen and chefs who follow those principles. Lucy's divided the book up into the four seasons, which makes it really easy to use. Um, in addition to the recipes, there are short essays on people and restaurants around the state and the illustrations, um, the photographs in the book are absolutely marvelous and they're going to want to make you go out and cook up a storm. So the, um, in the foreword to the book, John Shields from Gertrude's Restaurant, also a Maryland cookbook author, he writes, Dishing Up Maryland is a culinary love story. Lucy Snodgrass reinstills in us a sense of pride for the wonderful state of Maryland. So please join me in welcoming Lucy Snodgrass. Okay. Good evening. Judy, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here this evening in one of my favorite rooms in one of my favorite places in the city. So, um, um, so thank you for the invitation to be here. I'm delighted. I have to say that one of my other hats that I wear in life is that I'm the chairman of the board of uh, the library system in Hartford County, which I don't know whether you know that. So I, uh, I am a deeply committed library person and have actually, as a result, been invited to most of the library systems around our state to speak, um, which I'm really just thrilled to do with this book. So... Thank you all for coming out tonight. It is the dog days of summer, um, so I know that you must either be diehard food people or the air conditioning in your own home has broken down. So <laughs> in either event, I'm happy that you are here. Um, I thought I would just spend a little bit of time talking about this book and why I did it and the process of writing it and the wonderful people that I met in doing this book. Um, and first, I want to say hi to my old classmate, Hattie. She and I went to Hopkins together, and so it's great to just see some familiar faces here. I married into a farming family, uh, and I live in Harford County. My husband's family has had that same land for over 200 years. And so uh, when I married into that family, I married much more than my husband and in inheriting two great boys. I inherited this wonderful legacy of farming. Um, and my husband is someone who thinks that he can't imagine why anybody would not want to live on a farm um, and preserve a piece of land uh, that you could preserve. And we have a wonderful program in our state that I'm sure many of you are aware of uh, that is a land agricultural preservation program. We are actually uh, third in the nation in Hartford County in the amount of acreage that we have preserved um, in sort of per capita terms. And our farm is one of those pieces of land. Um, but we are encroached upon every day and every week by more and more development. And um, development is something that occurs. We all live in houses. Somebody, you know, my land before our house was on it was also a, just a bare piece of land. But we need both, but we also need a balance. And so for me, one of the reasons in doing this book was to say to people, 
you have an opportunity to support the farmers and the watermen in our state. And if you support the farmers by buying the things that they grow and they produce, you are doing more than just supporting a farm family, although that is to me one of the most important things that you can do. But you are also supporting a way of life um, in Maryland and a very treasured tradition that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And so um, for me, that was one large part of why I wanted to do this book. Um, now, I am someone who loves to cook. I've cooked my whole life. I come from a family of cooks. I was raised by people who had been professionally trained um, as chefs. I have no formal culinary training myself other than having been raised by people who loved to cook. And um, I can't imagine people that don't cook. Um, I was over at WYPR this afternoon, and the head of... Uh, membership services there came down to introduce herself to me and I've been an original member there and she said you know I just love the idea of this book but what do you do with it <laughs> and I wasn't quite sure where she was going with that question and I said well how, how do you mean that Deborah and she says well I just wouldn't know what to do with a cookbook I, I've never cooked a thing in my life um, and that is so hard for me to imagine. Um, but I know that there is a world of people out there who don't know how to cook at all. Um, but one of the things I wanted to do was even to people who don't uh, profess to do haute cuisine or have three hours a day, which I know none of us has, um, to cook anymore, I wanted to do a book that was fun and if you had a an absolute plethora of tomatoes in your garden, as I do now, um, that you could say, okay, well, let me quickly make a marinara sauce or let me do a pizza with fresh uh, tomatoes on it and give you some fairly simple and quick ideas of things that you could do with the abundance that you might have around or of the things that you buy at the farmer's market on Saturday or Sunday or whenever you go to a farm stand. Um, so that was another leg of this book, is that I love to cook and I love... Um, fresh food, and I love the things that we produce in our state. And then the third piece for me was that I'm a writer, and I love to tell stories. And so for me, probably the best part of this book was I'm an introvert, and so I would not normally introduce myself to people and say, can I come and look in your house and sit down and talk with you? But when you do a book like this, it's an invitation to do that, to call up people whose farms you've wanted to visit and say, I'm doing a book, and can I come and talk to you? And people are nice enough to say, sure, sure, come and talk to me. So I had a lot of fun going around the state um, in doing this book. And really, what I set out to do was divide it by season, as Judy mentioned, because people have always asked me, and I'm always astounded by this, um, you know, in February, someone will say to me, are these local strawberries that, you know, I'm buying in the market? And I say, well, they're local if you're from Sarasota, Florida, or, uh, you know, somewhere south. And people are so removed from what is actually grown and produced anymore in the world. Um, and so I thought if I divided the book into seasons, it might actually help people who are seasonally challenged. Um, to say, okay, you know, good, um, here I am in the middle of summer, and this is probably the good time to have corn. Um, and you can open the section and see that there are numerous corn recipes for the summer season. And so I do that for every season of the year. And partly I thought it was fun because it would introduce an element of surprise because people said to me, well, surely we have nothing that is Maryland that you can eat in the winter. 
Um, and nothing could be further from the truth. You just have to sort of change your mindset about what it is that you're going to eat. Um, we have wonderful meat producers around the state, lots of people doing neat stuff from raising heirloom turkeys to organic beef and bison meat. And, um, of course, we have this absolute surfeit of seafood from Maryland, um, you know, from the oysters to the rockfish to the perch to, you know, you just go down the list. So we have so many really wonderful things, and some of those things are best in season in the winter, um, for example. So don't despair that there is nothing Maryland that you can eat um, in the middle of winter. And there are always eggs, and there's cream and cheeses. And so I thought it would be fun to walk you through the state as you go through the year and let you see what it is that we have. Um, and we have some wonderful, wonderful farms and watermen in Maryland. And for me, I, I have described this, and, and John picked up on it, is it's very much a love story um, in some ways for me. It's a love letter to the farm community. It's a love letter to the watermen of our state. And it's my way of saying thank you for all of the food that I have harvested um, from all of these people across the years. And in organizing the book, what I wanted to do was include something from every county in the state. Um, partly because my publisher said, wouldn't it be a good thing to have something from every county so that they'd have a reason to buy it? So I said, gosh, you know, that's not really how I was going to organize the book, but it worked out that it's actually a wise thing to do. So people have been really enthused about the idea that their county has something in it. Um, and I've been really surprised by the amount of people who have now said to me, I'm visiting every farm that you've you know, written about in the book, or I've gone to the restaurants that you feature, and um, I'm talking to the watermen. And some of the chefs have said to me, I've had a lot more business since the book has come out. Um, many of the farmers have written to me or seen me at markets and said, thank you for putting the spotlight on the farming community. And um, really... At the heart of it, that's why I wanted to do the book. Uh, I didn't really think we needed uh, another cookbook in the world necessarily. Um, I'm not vain enough to think that mine is the end-all and be-all. But I did think it made sense uh, at a time when people are starting to think about local foods much more and are eating more seasonally uh, to do a book that would encourage you and sort of reward you for doing that and that would also give you a reason to get out in our state and see it and explore some of the places that I went to. Um, so I'll tell you about some of the people that I loved meeting in this book and there was no doubt that that was the best part of the book for me was just connecting with so many really wonderful people in the state so here are some of the random people that I met and loved um, up in Cecil County is Calora Orchards and it's the oldest orchard in the state of Maryland uh, dates back to 1840 and what I found, I knew that it was an old orchard, but what I didn't know was that the man who owns it is the great-great-grandson of Betsy Ross. And I just thought it was just one of those very neat tidbits. And he's a gracious, wonderful man who lives in this beautiful stone house from 1840 that um, his ancestors built. And the house is chock full of great little mementos and photographs and um, I got to sit there for hours and listen to stories and see photographs, and I thought, you know, really, it doesn't get any better than that for me. Um, and it's a wonderful family, and his parents, who are in their 80s, still sell peaches and apples, which are the two primary crops that come from Calora, out of a, 
a room in their basement, and it's run on an honor system. You go in there, and there are just boxes of fruit, depending on what time of year you go, and you can just pick what you want and put it in a bag and weigh it and leave the money on an honor system. And I love that you can still do that. And if you need change, you can call up the stairs and ask Mrs. Balderston to come downstairs, and she'll sit a spell with you and talk and um, make change for you and tell you what her favorite peach recipe is. And um, if you want other advice, she's happy to dispense that as well. Um, So I loved meeting them. Um, Going to the complete other end of our state, I loved that we have in Garrett County... Uh, a wonderful cheese-making organization, and they actually sell a lot of their cheese here if you go to the Waverly Market or the JFX. Um, Firefly cheeses, super, super cheeses, um, all made from goat's milk. And if you thought, well, I've had goat's cheese and you know I don't like it, they do, they run a gamut of very sort of just sort of creme fraiche almost like cheese to um, some aged cheeses that are hard cheeses, um, doing a great job with it. And they're just two great guys who started this business, and one of them is a chef, a really wonderful chef, Pablo. And I went out, talked with them, met the cheesemakers, saw the operation, and then they cooked me a fabulous meal. And we sat and talked for hours. And again, it was it was a great Maryland moment. And they are out towards Deep Creek Lake. If you are out sort of in McHenry, out in that neck of the woods, go in and see. They've got a small retail store. And if not, they sell in Whole Foods and, and at the market, uh, the, at the Waverly Market. They're always there with their cheeses. So great people. And the shore is filled with wonderful families that have farmed for a long, long time or worked the water. And um, one of the first families I interviewed was a family out uh, in Sudlersville, out in Kent County. And they have the largest asparagus farm in our state. It's the Godfreys. And they're a great young couple. And it's encouraging to see that they are in their 30s and they've got these adorable six-year-old twin girls. And they all work on this farm and they have about 300 acres of of produce, uh, starting with the asparagus and then going into peaches and blueberries and all kinds of things through Thanksgiving. And they're a family that is as hardworking as any you're ever going to meet in your life and as passionate about farming as you will find. And they sell to restaurants in uh, here. They sell to Charleston, for example. Um, They sell to restaurants in Washington as well. And... um, they're making a really good go of their farm, which is nice to see. You know, you can farm in our state and do well if you choose to be a niche farmer. Um, and not every farmer in the world obviously can niche farm, but we are a state that is positioned uniquely well to do that because within four hours of where we are, you have a population of 60 million people, sort of depending which gen, you know, sort of direction you go. And we're also one of the most affluent states uh, in the United States, and so people are willing to actually spend more for some of the things that are being produced uh, or raised or harvested on our on our farms now. Um, and so I love all the different stories that we have. Um, there's another cheesemaker out on the eastern shore, Holly Foster, who makes cab uh, who makes uh, cheddars, and she is the first person in Maryland to make raw milk cheese. Uh, many I don't know if many of you know that Maryland has always had a prohibition on raw milk cheese, and so you've had to go to Pennsylvania to make your cheese and um, and bring it back into Maryland. 
I've always said to the health inspectors when they have said to me, you know, that Maryland is just much more stringent than Pennsylvania, I've said, you know, I have never seen droves of people dying from eating Pennsylvania cheese. I mean, call me crazy, but um, they seem to have fared quite well these hundreds of years that they've made all sorts of things on Pennsylvania farms. But Maryland started a pilot project initiative, and this is really the first farm that is making this cheese now. And um, she's just outside of Easton, a spitfire of a woman um, who has more energy than 10 people do, who had never even milked a cow up until about eight years ago when her husband thought it was a good Christmas present to give her a a heifer. Um, And she said, I just said, what am I going to do with it? And he said, well, go out to the barn and milk it. And um, she said, you know, I... I loved it, Lucy. It was just the greatest thing. It came so naturally to me, and I totally was possessed of the idea, and she is making outrageously delicious cheeses that she sells in a lot of farmer's markets, including one, two in D.C., um, one in Rehoboth, one in Lewis, and the Eastern Farmer's Market on Saturday. So well worth the trip just to see Holly's and taste Holly's cheeses. She's expanded into making yogurt as well, and it is really rich, wonderful yogurt. Um, so great woman she um i went to smith island how many of you have ever been out to smith island if you've never been it is a magical place um there are only about 300 people left in the three towns that comprise uh smith island and it's actually not one island but several islands um and it's just a beautiful and wonderful place uh the woman that i interviewed susan evans her family has been there for 13 generations. Most of the people on Smith Island came from Cornwall in England, um, which is one of the reasons they have quite a unique accent. If you've ever met anyone from Smith Island, they have a very uh, distinct accent, somewhat like the the people on Tangier Island, for example, uh, as well. So it's, uh, it's not... It's not what you would say is a typical southern accent. It has a, an interesting Elizabethan sound to it. Um, anyway, most of the people on that island, still the men work the water and are watermen. Many of the women who, because they provide the health care for the families, commute every day into Crisfield. There's a, a boat that leaves at 7.30 in the morning and goes into Crisfield every day. Many of the women work either in the prison or in the hospital um, on the mainland. And then they commute back on the 5.30 boat going back to Crisfield. And if you stay the night, as I did, you get to go back with everyone who's heading home, including Susan, who's leaving her job. And so she'll chat with you on the 45-minute ride. It's sort of 17 miles out. Um, And she'll say, well, we're going to stop at my parents' house because I'll see what my father and brother caught for us today that we'll have for dinner. And we do, and outside of her parents' house is this enormous pomegranate bush filled with pomegranates, and figs uh, are also something that are grown on the island. So the women there also make fig jelly and pomegranate jelly, which is really wonderful. Um, And while you eat dinner, first she lets you just take a bike ride around the island, which you should do, and every single person on the island knows that you came on the boat already. Um, And waves at you and says hi, which is wonderful because there aren't many places left like that in the world. And you sit down, you have dinner, and she makes the Smith Island cake while you're having dinner. Now, if any of you have attempted a Smith Island cake, it is it requires a fair amount of sort of dexterous uh, finger, you know, fingers and sort of good hand-eye coordination to get it right. She, in the meanwhile, is just whipping these layers in and out of the oven 
She does them three at a time. She does hers ten layers. And she, you know, is chatting with you gamely and bringing in the other food for a thing and, and then is whipping up the icing. And it's quite something to behold. So by the time you have finished your dinner, she brings in the Smith Island cake. Um, and it's an interesting story because I really wanted someone to give me a Smith Island cake recipe. But what I soon found was not only do the 300 people all know each other, they all guard their recipe for the Smith Island cake, you know, very seriously. And so she was very coy with me. Well, and I just, mm, I don't think so. And I said, well, you know, I'll give you some time to think about it. And I had to pursue her for weeks on end. And finally I said, you know, Susan, I'm either going to have to move on or you're going to have to take this leap of faith and decide that I can be entrusted with your Smith Island cake recipe. And she said, well, you know, I've talked to my father and my mother, and they, they agree, okay, you know, we can, we can share the recipe. Um, and so I felt like it was a sacred trust. I really did. Um, and actually, when the book came out, uh, we did the launch in Annapolis, and we did all local foods for the launch, and the governor was nice enough to host it for me. And we invited Susan to come. She did not know that the governor was coming, and she baked two of her Smith Island cakes. And when she got there that evening and set up, and the governor came in, she just about had heart failure. Um, And then proceeded to just run up to him with her Smith Island cake and and say, Governor, this is the best Smith Island cake you're going to ever have. And being a good politician, he agreed that it was indeed the best Smith Island cake he'd ever had. And she got her picture taken with the governor. And the funny thing is that what she, she got a lot of press out of it as a result. All the papers on the shore wrote about her and her Smith Island cake. And she said, you know, I wasn't even going to go to the opening. I mean, I thought, how big was it going to be, you know? I mean, and they asked me to bake something for it. But, you know, a friend of mine said, well, go. It'll, I'm sure it'll be nice. And she said... I got there, and then the governor and Judge O'Malley were there for, for my Smith Island cake. I mean, that's why they came. So she said, I was the center of attention. You know, I mean, she loved the experience of it, and I thought it was just terrific. She was tickled pink and um, got her pictures taken with the governor and is you know, sort of proudly now telling everyone that she makes the best Smith Island cake in Maryland, and far from me to dispute it. I encourage you to try your own Smith Island cake. It's a lot of fun to do. I probably wouldn't do it between dinner courses if you're having guests and you've never attempted it before. Um, but it's actually, it's a, it's a very sweet, the icing is very sweet. Um, but it's, it's something you have to do. It's a lot of fun. The batter is, uh, you only put about three tablespoons of batter into the pans. And so it's much more like a crepe consistency, very, very thin. Some people have said to me, oh, you you mean you're not making one big thing and slicing it into ten layers? No. You are making it in these individual pans. And you put it in about three tablespoons of batter. It goes in for about five or six minutes and then out. And so it's a very quick, you know, you're really moving with it. Uh, And it does take some practice to put it together. But it's a lot of fun, and it's a guaranteed dinner conversation piece if you do it. So I encourage you to try that if you are at all inclined towards baking. One of my other favorite people in the book is um, out in Allegheny County. And 
I did not know that we had maple syrup uh, in Maryland on any scale before I did the book. I knew that some people have always tapped their own trees. We've tapped our own on our farm. Um, so you can do it if you've got sugar maples. You know, anyone can do it. Um, but there is a wonderful man out in Allegheny County named Leo Shinholt who has SNS maple syrup. And I went out and visited him and asked him if I could interview him for the book. And he, too, was a little reluctant initially. And when I found out the reason, I appreciated it all the more. And that was, he said, you know, Lucy, I grew up dirt poor. And when we grew up, we had no refined sugar. Um, It was only poor people who made maple syrup. And he said, I have for years held the price of my maple syrup down. He's been selling it for over 50 years. And he taps thousands of trees um, out in Allegheny and Garrett counties. And he said, you know, the Canadians always want to buy my entire crop um, of maple syrup. And I tell them, no, I am not selling it so rich people can have maple syrup in Canada. And I said, I like that. I admire that about you, Leo. And so he has kept his price low. And it is the most delicious maple syrup you'll ever have. You can go and he will give you a warm sample when you're there, um, which is a pretty terrific experience. If you've never had warm maple syrup, it's, um, it's wonderful. So we have a lot of great characters in our state. And um, being somewhat eccentric myself, I really appreciate people who are quirky in good ways. And we've just got a lot of great people who are doing neat things. You know, there was a, a young couple that I went out uh, oystering with uh, on the Honga River on certainly one of the coldest days of my life. Um, It was about 10 degrees the day that we went out, and we were out there for a long time, and it gave me a lot more respect than I'd already had for the watermen, um, because if you are out there, what you're there to do is empty the dredge, sort through, cull back, start the process over again, and your hands, no matter what you're wearing on your hands, are really, really cold, and... You do that for hours on end, and by the end of the day, uh, as they assessed their take from the day, um, it was only four bushels of oysters that day. That didn't even pay for the diesel fuel for the boat. Um, And I asked them, why do you keep doing it? It's, again, another young couple, which I admire, and you rarely see women um, as watermen. They are usually the ones who will uh, fix the crab pots and do the kind of things that, uh, you know, help with the trot lines, those sorts of things, but they don't typically go out, actually, on the water. This young couple, the Haydens, Michelle and Jimmy, work the water together, um, and they do it because they love to keep this tradition going, because they think it's really important that they get to work the water and carry on a very proud tradition, and they work together, um, and so they spend their days out on the water in the summer, they're crabbing in the winter they're oystering, and they wouldn't give it up for anything. And on a good year, they bring in about $60,000 gross, um, which is not a lot of money when you've got to pay for diesel fuel and boat repairs and your license and everything else. And yet they said, we won't do anything else in life. As long as there is anything to pull out of the water, we will do it. And for me, the book was really about celebrating a lot of these people um, that we have in our state who otherwise are not in the pages of the sun um, or written up or interviewed on the radio. And 
um, for me, the idea of highlighting such people and letting them know that there are others who appreciate what they do was really important um, in writing this book. And I think probably the most gratifying piece of it for me has been the fact that so many people have said to me, thank you um, for writing this book, because people have now said I had no idea what you do or how hard you work or what it takes to earn a living on a farm. And um, for me, then, it's worth it, um, having done that. I, when I set out to do the book, uh, talked to the Maryland Department of Agriculture and I asked them if they would be interested in sort of partnering with me a little bit on the book and that I would donate a portion of the proceeds from the book to the Maryland's Best Marketing Network. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with it. It is, they run essentially a virtual farm network um, on their website, which is www.marylandsbest.net. It's, it's listed in the book, as are all of the farms. Um, but you can go onto that website and say, you know, I want to pick strawberries today. And say, type in strawberries, and all of the farms in Maryland that sell strawberries or where you can go and pick strawberries come up on that website. And they do that for cheeses, you know, pork, beef, lamb, anything you're looking for, that resource is there. And so I'm donating a portion of the proceeds from the book to them so that they continue to expand the marketing efforts um, of our farmers and, and the watermen to really focus people on what we have in our own state. And I'm encouraged. There's a lot to be encouraged about um, in Maryland in the world of farming. The last census from 10 years ago um, showed that the number of farms in Maryland had dipped below 12,000. Uh, the most recent census shows that the number has gone up um, to about 12,600 farms. And what's counterintuitive about it is that we are losing big farms across America. Um, Maryland has always been a small farm state. We're just a small state. And what you're seeing now increasingly are second and third career people who are going into farming uh, because they love it, because they're passionate about food, because they want to do something that is a niche, um, whether it's raising organic chickens or buffalo or, um, in the case of these two very interesting women out in uh, Frederick County, making vinegar uh, the old-fashioned way, which is an 18-month process from vine to bottle. Um, almost nobody makes vinegar that way anymore. It is usually uh, an additive is, is sort of put in and it speeds up the, the whole process of it. Uh, if you make vinegar naturally, you make it into wine first. And from the wine, you then make the vinegar. And they make these exquisite vinegars um, that sell for $40 a bottle, um, which I am not accustomed to spending $40 a bottle on vinegar. Nonetheless, I will say... It's fabulous vinegar. They make four different kinds. They are each distinct. And Alice Waters, who I know if you're a food person you know is sort of one of the absolute goddesses in American food, um, had it and said, you know, this is the best vinegar I've had in the United States. Uh, so, you know, these women are here in Maryland doing it, and they're both second and third career people. And there are a lot of people around the state doing that. Um, I interviewed engineers, other scientists who are now, you know, raising organic produce or uh, raising heirloom turkeys. Neat stories, and they're doing it because they are just passionately committed to it. And um, so I encourage you to look through the book, um, pick out some of these farms, go out and visit some of them for yourselves, and, and see 
just what we have out there because it's a it's a real treasure trove that we do have and even the waterman's fate which is certainly a much more sober fate at this point there is some reason for optimism and i think that if we are all careful stewards of the bay and the rivers and the ocean um that we can have this abundance that carries forward um but we all have to be mindful of it and we all have to also try and support what people are doing as they're trying to make a living on on the land and on the water. So I'll stop there. Um, see if you have questions. I'd love to answer any questions if you've got any. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a good point that you raise. Um, actually, I have very dear friends who keep kosher, so um, I should have been more mindful of that. Um, I did not... I'm trying to think... Um, there is a butcher out in Western Maryland, and almost everyone who is looking for kosher meats goes there. One of the things that one of the issues I think that people don't realize is we have very few USDA certified slaughterhouses left. Um, I mean, this is not necessarily the most appetizing issue to talk about, but it is part of um, sort of surviving farming and doing and. Um, Anyway, in terms of that, there is that one facility that people go to, and um, they they are a kosher slaughterer out there. So they were the the probably the best find that way. And and I've learned that almost anyone who is buying kosher meats knows that this is where it comes from. So and they're listed they're listed in the book as well as a resource. But I'll I'll think about that if I do something in the future. I will definitely keep that in mind. Okay, thanks. The most difficult part of the book, for sure, was paring down um, the number of people that I could put in the book. Well, there's also now the farm that um, Tony Jurassi is running with the kids, the kids' farm. Um, you know, so they're doing, they're raising a lot of good food for the Baltimore City school system, and he has done a great deal to try and promote the idea of bringing some healthful foods into. Uh, the Baltimore school cafeterias, which I really applaud. Um, one of the ancillary efforts that I've been involved in is Maryland Homegrown Lunch Week, which this will be our third year of doing this, and that is for a week. It's the first week in September in the school systems across the state. Um, The cafeterias have agreed to serve some Maryland produce, Maryland products, so that our kids um, can actually experience what a fresh peach tastes like or um, a salad that is locally grown. Um, When Tony Jurassic came and started doing that the first year. He bought 60,000 peaches for the kids for opening day of school here, and many of the kids said they had never had a fresh peach in their life. Um, you know, so it's it's really a, an important effort, and we're trying to get the counties to expand that window of time from one week to two, and we have a lot of challenges in terms of distribution and even supply in central kitchens and things like that, but um, some of those things are catching on. And I do know that Baltimore City has has been in touch with him um, for their upcoming um, Maryland Homegrown Lunch Week, so I know he's tapped into that program. But no, I, sadly, I could not include everyone, um, and I almost literally cried as I had to sort of lop off people um, from the book because the publisher has a very set uh, amount of pages, and uh, you know, after which it becomes dramatically more expensive to produce the book, and so I just couldn't include everyone that I wanted to. You can make milk from pasture. You can make cheese from pasteurized milk, but some people prefer to make the cheese from the raw milk without pasteurizing it, and that's what. 
Yes, and that's why you've not been permitted to do that. As I said, Pennsylvania has done it, and in fact, almost all of the Maryland cheese that you buy, even if it says Hawks Hill Creamery or Brooms Bloom Dairy or any of those, those cheeses have actually been made in Pennsylvania with that absolutely dreaded raw milk. Um, and you know, no one, we have never had an incidence of anyone in Maryland getting sick from eating the, the Pennsylvania raw milk cheeses. I know a fair amount about the, Mar- about the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture, and they have a very, very robust system of working with their farmers. And actually, the Amish do have to adhere to the same standards that everybody else does. You know, they send their inspectors out. The milk inspectors are out on the farms. And, but they've managed to do it. And they, you know, I've been up to some of the, the caves in Pennsylvania. And they're, they're clean. Their standards are, are very, very high. Um, what it actually is is that, um, first of all, Pennsylvania is a much larger state. It's got a much stronger agricultural component to it. Um, and so agriculture is really a, an anchoring part of Pennsylvania's economy, even more so than it is in Maryland. And so they've just had a long tradition of it. And whether it's the Amish, the Mennonites, and just you know the many, the Germans, the Swiss, the others that settled in Pennsylvania over the years, they've always just had a culture that has supported that. Before I take another question, I just want to mention the photographs in the book. Judy mentioned them. And you'll notice that they are really beautiful photographs in the book. And they're all taken by a man named Edwin Remsburg, who was a sun photographer for years. Um, he happens to be also a Hartford Countyan and um, is also a farmer in his spare time. And he does work nationally for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and he does a lot of work for uh, Maryland Life magazine and others. And I have always loved his work. And so when I wrote the book proposal, I wrote him in as the photographer for the book. And if you haven't looked through the book and seen, the photographs are really, really beautiful. Um, So I'm just pleased. I always want to mention that Edwin's work is... I think, what makes the book so visually beautiful. Calvert's Gift Farm is a great farm. Um, They're in Baltimore County on Yoho Road, and they sell, Becky sells at the Bordy Vineyards um, Thursday night market. She sells at the Bel Air Farmer's Market on the weekend. Um, She sells at... I think the JFX market. She's also at the JFX market, and she sells in Tacoma Park. Um, One Straw Farm, uh, Joan and Drew Norman, and Joan also does a number of the farmer's markets. They they both, both of those farms carry a huge variety of heirloom tomatoes from, you know, the zebras to the Amish paste to the uh, black Russians. I mean, you can go on and on and on. So they're easy to find, actually. And, you know, we now have about 123 farmer's markets in Maryland, and including, I think, at least 10 in the city of Baltimore alone. There's a great market now, if you've not tried it, over at the University of Maryland outside, um, outside of the hospital, um, that the dietitians there started, which I think, go, dietitians. Um, and they've pulled in a lot of really neat vendors, um, you know, including a guy who, who's got seafood and some wonderful um, produce vendors as well. So in almost any neighborhood you can find, you know, Harbor East has them. There's another one out at Bayview. Um, You know, we've got the JFX. We've got the Waverly. There's one at Whole Foods on Wednesdays up in Mount Washington. So lots and lots of great opportunities, and all of those will feature good tomatoes there. So, And if not, come to my farm. I'm drowning in tomatoes. (laughs) I made 18 quarts of tomato sauce Saturday and Sunday. So... Every August, you say to yourself, why am I slaving in the kitchen? It's 95 degrees. The sweat is dripping down. I say, why am I doing this to myself every year? Especially because, for some reason, my husband 
evaporates miraculously whenever the word, you know, tomato sauce is sort of conjured up. He seems to be nowhere to be found for the chopping and doing so. But come January, when I'm eating really wonderful tomato sauce, I, I'm then appreciative of my own efforts. So, My mother-in-law, who is 94 and a wonderful cook, um, her, her tomato gravy is something to, to savor, and she has made it her whole life. And uh, it's, that's a real Maryland tradition. Uh, you know, for, for those of you particularly who come from farm families, um, a good tomato gravy is really something special. And it's really, uh, you know, you're just, you're dredging your tomatoes in flour. Tell me if you make yours differently, sir. But I dredge mine in flour, and they're traditionally fried in bacon grease. Um, you know, you're not going for the healthful effect here. And it, was, it, it really came about as a result of what people had as extras, very poor. My mother-in-law said that, you know, during the Great Depression, um, you know, that's, she said, we ate a lot of tomato gravy, and it's, you know, typically served. Then you, you add a little bit of milk to it and a lot of salt and pepper to it and um, serve it on white bread is how she eats it. Now, whenever I visited a farm or if I visited a restaurant, and there are about 12 restaurants that I highlight in the book, um, I chose the chefs because they each had a commitment to local food. So uh, you mentioned John, uh, and then others. The And there are some really, it, it kind of ranges from almost crab shacks, which Cantler's, if any of you have ever eaten at Cantler's um, outside of Annapolis, it's a glorified crab shack, and they have fabulous crabs that the Cantler's still today go out and, and get. So... Um, Anyway, my emphasis had to be, uh, they had to have an emphasis on local food. Um, And so whenever I talked to a chef, I would ask them to give me a recipe or two that they really liked. Um, And I said to them, I may play with them because I am an inveterate tinkerer of recipes. But by and large, I respected their recipes. And um, so those, you'll see them always notated. Uh, You know, John Shields has his um, Rockfish Imperial, for example, is there. And... um, a wonderful chef down in southern Maryland, Loic Jaffre, who's a Frenchman, uh, does a wonderful oysters, Rockefeller sort of fancy thing that he developed and won the one of the oyster cook-offs. Um, so you have recipes in the book that are from those people, from chefs. Um, some of the farm families, like Mrs. Balster, Mrs. Balderston of Calora Orchard, said to me, "Well, I could give you my peach streusel pie recipe. Would you like that?" And I said, "Yeah, I would." You know, and um, so there's some great recipes that way. They're they're not. Again, I, I emphasize that. I did not set out to have this be, you know, sort of haute cuisine. It's really good, fresh, and fairly simple food much of the time. But I did ask watermen and others to share some of their favorite recipes um, with me. And so Peggy Elliott, whose husband was a waterman for 60 years, uh, I have several of her recipes. Her crab balls are to die for, just really yummy. Um, And her rice pudding is very good, although I did play with that a little bit. Um, So... It's a mixture. And then I would say probably 60% of the recipes are mine in the book. Um, I have cooked since the time I was four. I just cannot imagine not cooking. And I, when I devised the book, I started with the seasons because that's the way I think and sort of shop and cook anyway. Um, and then I thought by ingredients and uh, made a list of all the ingredients that I wanted included from, you know, soft-shell crabs to asparagus to wine berries, I mean, just quirky things even that are just my likes and dislikes. Um, And then if I had someone 
that I interviewed, like Mrs. Bogger from Boggers out in Carroll County, that is a real, you know, sort of Maryland institution for over 100 years. And she said, I said, you know, you've got to give me something with apples. And so you know, she gave me an apple cake. But then if that didn't occur, um, then I just made up the recipes and I kind of played with them over a year. And um, my husband has his business on our farm, on our farm, and he has about eight to 12 people working for him, depending on what time of year. And they were my guinea pigs. Um, and so for a year, I cooked um, for my audience of 12. And the only price of admission was that they had to give me uh, a review at the end of every meal and tell me honestly whether you know they got the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And I tinkered with them. I will say that they got so spoiled towards the end that you know my day would begin by people demanding what the menu was going to be <laughs> and whether we were having one or two desserts. And I thought, you know, maybe this has gone a bit far. Perhaps I have created some monsters in the process. Um, but it was enormous fun doing it. And so that's where the recipes came from, a mixture of things. Hartford County and many counties in Maryland were big on tomatoes and had tomato canneries on their farms. We had one on our farm, um, in fact. And when we renovated our farmhouse, which is from 1881, um, about 10 years ago, we found all of this old script in the walls um, because they would give, you know, many of the factory towns would do that. They would pay their workers with script, usually these sort of tin coppery um, coins that you could redeem at the at the store, at the company store. Usually it was basically nothing more than indentured servitude. Um, you know, they certainly didn't do very well with that, but it was a system. And so we found that. So a lot of, a lot of places in Maryland had tomato canneries in particular on their farms. Very interesting. And Hartford County had a lot of those. You know, Baltimore has really, has really started sprouting gardens everywhere, which is nice. Um, I personally think we need to go back to the Victory Garden model, um, which, you know, in most people think Victory Gardens were from World War II, but in fact they go back to World War I. That's when they were started. And um, it, it's, just a, it's just a wonderful thing. You know, everybody who had any dirt whatsoever um, grew a garden. And again, my mother-in-law, who, as I said, is 94, you know, remembers growing their victory gardens. And they did them through school programs. So the school kids did them, and they really learned what it was to start working the soil. And we are really far behind in America. A lot of other countries are doing that with the kids, just, you know, keeping them connected to agriculture. And we just need to do it. Um, you know, I'm sure you've all heard the statistic that most food comes an average of 1,500 miles. Um, it's not a sustainable, uh, uh, clearly a sustainable policy. The food that is being shipped 1,500 miles is usually food that is grown for shippability and for the visual aesthetics of it. And if you've bought a tomato in the middle of winter that has been shipped from California, you know that it has no flavor to it whatsoever. Um, so... Clearly, we are not a state where you are growing tomatoes year-round unless you are lucky enough to have a greenhouse, which I do because I made my husband build me one um, from our old chicken shed. Actually, I didn't make him. He did that as my Christmas present one year from scraps, and he happens to be a handy guy, so he built me a, a greenhouse for Christmas, which was really a better use of the old chicken coop than what it had been stored you know, for. So, But you know, we, we can grow a lot of things. We have a long growing season. Not year-round, but what you can do at a time like this is freeze a lot of foods. Um, I, you know, 
I just say to people, for example, corn at the moment is really cheap and plentiful. It's not the best year we've had for corn, but nonetheless, the corn is quite good. And where I live, there are several farmers that will offer you three dozen ears for $10. Um, normally now, corn is four fifty dollars or $5 a dozen. Um, but you can get three dozen ears of corn for $10, and I freeze it. I just steam it for a minute and then shock it in an ice bath you know, and just let it drip and then just cut the corn from the cobs and put them in Ziploc bags and throw them in the freezer. And we have corn all winter, and it's fabulous, and it's inexpensive, and you don't need to buy it from Florida. Um, you've just done it um, on your own in your kitchen. So there are a lot of things you can do that to. You know, many people say, well, going and buying food at the farmer's market is more expensive. And I'll just sort of end on, on this note of my little speech. Um, that it may be true that some, on the face of it, it is more expensive to buy food from local farms, um, although it's counterintuitive. But you are factoring in, you are not factoring in into the price the fact that the food that you buy locally is much fresher. It's usually not been treated with as much pesticide as foods that have come from the huge industrial farms. Um, I'm not saying that the farmers here don't use pesticides. It's very difficult to grow food on a large scale and grow it organically. But they are typically using much less um, than they do uh, in some of these very, very enormous operations. So that's a cost that is not factored in. But if you buy truly what is sort of fresh that week and plentiful eggplants, peppers, cucumbers at this point. You know, people, they're almost throwing them at you. And you can always find somebody. I'm bringing in baskets of tomatoes and peppers and zucchinis to work every day, so I'm feeding half of my office, so I'm doing my bit, you know, to keep people in local food. But, um, but you can find food that is also inexpensive at the farmer's market is healthy. And then, as I said, if you can can it, I still do a lot of canning and freezing, and, um, and not everybody can do that, but you can certainly do some things, um, even without any special equipment, and you don't need to have even a huge amount of freezer space, and you can still either can or, or freeze a good amount of food for the, for the rest of the year. Yeah, you have to have a, a pressure cooker at some point. You know, I, I have one that I've had forever. The jars you can reuse year after year, so you just need new lids, um, you know, new, the band. The, you don't need new bands, you just need new lids to do it. So it's not that expensive at all, actually. We are blessed by just our location and the fact that we've got a lot of very fertile um, in sort of the Piedmont, you know, so we've got the, the shore is very sandy soil, so it's good for watermelons, melons, asparagus, things where you want that rapid drainage, um, and it's warmer out there. So not every region, but Maryland is sort of Mer you know, America in miniature that way because we have the elevation necessary for the kinds of crops that need cold, like fruits, apples, peaches, stone fruits, need a period of actual intense cold um, in order for them to do what they're supposed to do come spring. Um, so we have a mixture of soils, a mixture of topography that has, you know, sort of contributed to it being an abundant state to begin with. Obviously, our waters have always been abundant. I don't know if any of you have gone back and read any of John Smith's diaries um, from when he did his 1608 um, journey. It's staggering, the amount of animals and fish that he wrote about, you know, just the point where you, you could just pull 
bushel after bushel after bushel of oysters and, you know, fish were just leaping out of the water. So it was a a place of great abundance always. And farming has had a, a long tradition in Maryland, and fortunately it has managed to preserve some of that, although we've lost an enormous amount of farmland. Um, but because there still is a strong tradition of farming, particularly in the northern part of the state and on the shore. Um, Southern Maryland was very much a tobacco um, farming part of the state. And it's interesting that Southern Maryland, the three Southern Maryland counties, um, were part of the the federal tobacco buyout um, program. And as part of that, we got money to help farmers transition to another crop if they chose to take the buyout and stop farming tobacco. And Southern Maryland now has a lot of vineyards, for example, um, that they've put in, and also um, melons, and, um, you know, so they've done quite well with it. But we have good soils to begin with. As, you know, obviously, as you're out in western Maryland, you're finding less and less fertile farmland out there. You don't, you don't have as much that's growing out there. So we also do have, as I said before, we have a very good um, statewide policy on farmland preservation. So the state of Maryland has for, very, uh, for a long time, under both Democratic and Republican governors, um, made it possible for people who wanted to sell their development rights, uh, they pegged it to sort of the market value of some of the acreage and then would make up the difference. You know, you'd get the agricultural value and they would buy the rest of it. And we've had a very aggressive program in Maryland doing that. So we have preserved a huge amount of acreage and that has certainly helped keep farming viable. It's very tough. I mean, anyone who is in the farm community will tell you that um, giving their farm to the next generation or making it possible for uh, young people to come in and start farming is so difficult because the land is so expensive in our state. Um, it doesn't matter where you are. It's just expensive. So um, it's interesting that there have been a couple of programs now to try and trained to do an apprenticeship program for young farmers. And um, Calvert's Gift Farm in, in Baltimore County is one of the ones that's training this next generation of farms, trying to, giving, trying to give them some hands-on experience. And then hopefully there'll be some assistance to help them with some land down the road as well. Any farmer will tell you that if you're growing a commodity crop like corn or soybeans, which are the two big commodity crops, it's the cost of your seed and your fertilizer every year. Um, the price of fertilizer has gone up dramatically. Um, my husband used to farm 500 acres of uh, mixed both corn and soybeans. As, as I said, it's, those are the two big commodity crops in Maryland that people grow. Um, and, you know, every spring he would take out a loan for $150,000. And, you know, this was many years ago to do it. And then you, when you sell your corn or your soybeans, obviously you pay it back then. So the upfront cost is very expensive. Equipment can be an enormous cost, although you do not need to have the newest John Deere tractor. And I think a lot of farmers have seen um, now that they could actually make do with some of the older equipment, although, you know, some of the new equipment, you can plant 24 rows of corn simultaneously now, which is not something that you could do, um, you know, 50 years ago, even 25 years ago. So there's equipment that will set you back a half a million dollars before you've even put in a, you know, a one little kernel of corn. So those are, those are a big cost. But the biggest 
really the biggest obstacle is the fact that young farmers, unless they are from farming families where the land is being handed down to them or somehow figured out equitably in a family split, they cannot afford the land um, to even start farming. So, And it's very hard now to even find enough land for the farmers who want to farm. They're always looking um, at who's got some extra acreage that they can actually just go ahead and farm. So those, those are some of the real prohibitive costs to them. Judy, we've run out of time here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you.